0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollack, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We have three movies to talk about this week. We've got a wrestling picture, we've got a car racing picture, and we've got a... Gay classical music biopic, I guess, for lack of a better uh, genre classification. We're going to talk to Stephen Garrett about Maestro, starring and directed by Bradley Cooper. That is on Netflix now. I'm going to talk to our contributor Stephen McCauley, no relation to Stephen Garrett, about Ferrari. Uh, Michael Mann directed Enzo Ferrari Biopic, set in 1957. Uh, a terrific film. And then Stephen Garrett will come back to talk to me about The Iron Claw, which is a movie, a sports weeper about the uh, Von Erich family of wrestling, who were very prominent in the 1980s. So we have three sort of historical genre movies this week. It should be quite entertaining, and I encourage you to hang around and listen to our conversation and listen to these great trailer clips we're going to play for you. And I'll be right back with Steven to talk about Maestro. I'm thinking of a number. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, I don't know. Nine. No. Five. No, you have to think. <laughs> I'm, trying. I'm trying to. It's two, darling.
2: Two.
0: It's two. Like us, a pair. Two little ducks in a park. Steve and I am thinking of a number. (laughs) Two.
1: A pair, darling. Just like us.
0: Yes, yes, there's two of us. (laughs) Two of us talking about Maestro. Maestro. (laughs) Darling. Uh, It is... uh, uh, The movie sings within me. So, yes, we're talking about Maestro, the new Leonard Bernstein biopic that... Only Bradley Cooper wanted to make. Well, Brad. Only Bradley Cooper, Martin Scorsese, and Steven Spielberg wanted to make. No one. No one really wants. Seems to want to be watching it. It's not Ooh. exactly burning. Br- well, it's true. It's not really burning up the Netflix hustings. You know, it's like it's an art film. It's kind of like um, it's there. It's their art film of the year. You know, it's like Roma or Mank. Um, you know, they make an art film, a very Oscar Beatty art film every year, and Maestro is is this year's. Film and that's not to disparage it. I mean, it's obviously a, a fine, a fine film, um, and uh, you, you gave it a very positive review on Book and Film Globe. I liked it. I liked a lot. Yeah, you know, I kind of like the second half better than than the black and white first half. I found that overly stylized, yeah. kind of pretentious. You know, very self consciously avant garde, but not, but not actually avant garde. You know, the sort of dream ballet. The dream the uh, the on the town dream ballet I was like I'm like what the what the hell is this crap you know and then the second half when the movie goes to color it kind of turns more naturalistic a little maybe a little more straightforward and that that's I think where actually the best scenes in the in the film are um you know the the, the movie obviously Linda Bernstein was a great American musician conductor composer teacher of music popularizer of classical music for the unwashed masses but the movie itself isn't, it's really more about his marriage to, um, well, his his wife wasn't named Carrie Mulligan, but his wife is played by Carrie,
1: his marriage <laughs> to Carrie Mulligan. Uh, well, I'm going to mangle her last name, Felicia Montalegre. Felicia right?
0: Rashad. Rashad. Uh,
1: Felicia. <laughs> <laughs> Felicia. <laughs> Felicia Ayers, Rashad, yeah, yeah. Montalegre.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, Montalegre, who is a, uh, an actress uh, of some note, a Broadway actress of some note, although her career got. Um, I think subverted uh you know kind of torpedoed by Leonard Bernstein's own fame and the the demands of raising Maya Hawk and two other children um and uh, Mayahawk again was not their actual child but was uh, in fact the, the actress who plays their oldest daughter. Um, I, <laughs> it's all getting very confusing and you know news flash Leonard Bernstein was gay. <laughs> I don't know if you caught that in the movie or not, Stephen.
1: Now, I remember as a teenager hearing that, and and it was whispers, you know, like, I think he's actually gay, too. I mean, do you remember then when that was quite scandalous and, like, not confirmed or denied? Right. But, you know, only if you were, like, very urbane or lived in New York or near it or you knew people in New York, they'd say, oh, yes, well, he's also gay. Like, he really was not out-out, right?
0: No, well, it was the time. It was not yet um, the mo- modern day when it, it is no longer needs to be a secret. The movie, um, boys did hammer that home. And, you know, Felicia, he does, he loves, loves his wife <laughs> very much, uh, but also... Uh, loves the boys. Loves the boys. He just loves the life. He loves life. And so, I don't know, I found the first part where he's like a young, up-and-coming... Musical genius and all of the parties they go to with the with the lame singing and the. And the 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 sort of hammy film noir like dialect and it, I, I didn't like all that part. But then when it, when the movie turns to color and it becomes the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies, I felt like it had it had a little bit more substance and um, I think it held held together better. It, it was a little less full of itself. I, I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think for me the big problem is it just felt
1: completely hemmed in. You know, you mentioned the daughters and their producers on this, and they've been involved with it for years and years and trying to get the project off the ground and Spielberg was going to direct at a certain point and Scorsese was going to direct at a certain point. And it's, you know, you, you feel a lot of belabored kind of studying of what part of his life are we going to, are we going to spotlight? And how much of, are we going to really reveal? I really felt like the, the, the wife was absolutely put on a pedestal by the children and she was this, you know, long suffering, saintly woman who sacrificed it all including her career. And as you said, she was an actress of some repute, right? <laughs> but like, was she was she the Leonard Bernstein of, of Broadway? No. Was she Sarah Bernhardt? You don't get the sense that she was giving up much. Sorry. You know, the movie makes it seem like they were toe-to-toe in, in terms of creative geniuses or equals. You she know? was a working actress. She was a working actress who like married a superstar genius. And so yeah. of course she's going to sacrifice. It's kind of baked into the, into the calculation. Anyway. Yeah. So it just felt like, Uh, this is a great for me example of how somebody who's incredibly talented, it's not so much the story they tell, but how they tell the story. And you're right, I it did feel kind of pretentious. At the same time, Leonard Bernstein was not above pretension, right? I mean, he, he could deliver the goods, but he also loved to revel in, you know, like, oh, look at me, and like, this is fantastic. And like, you know, there is something uh, larger than life, something overblown uh, in the style of the direction that felt appropriate. I mean, Matthew Libatique is the cinematographer. He did a, a, an astounding, I thought, just absolutely astounding job he 's being very literal, and I feel like they kind of lean into it like there 's that one shot where you know Felicia is literally standing in the shadow of you know Lenny as he conducts on stage and she 's in the wings you know um, so they they embrace the dynamic in a visual way in an actorly way I think what I, I, the way that I read it and what I liked about it is and what I liked about Bradley Cooper specifically directing it is that this is an actor who 's directing, and whenever actors direct there is always the sense or maybe the potential for performances to be kind of indulged or emphasized over the story and in this case i feel like the story is pretty pat right we've got a the genius but closeted tortured gay man and the long suffering saintly wife you know great fine we've seen that a thousand times but the way that bradley cooper tells that story i think is really interesting and i think also the pretension and and the airs that they put on in terms of presenting themselves as you know being part of the society of of you know of the upper class, of of the, the genius creative, you know, New York high society is a put on, is a mask. And I think these people had to wear masks in order to not only live uh in the world, but also live with each other and with themselves. And there's a lot of masquerading going on. And it 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 really behooves having an actor direct. Uh, those scenes because I like I'm sure you noticed we we were kind of talking briefly about that scene with, that involves Snoopy um, there are long takes and long shots where just the camera you got to have the confidence enough to know that what you're capturing is really good but the camera's locked down and you're just watching
0: performances and it is incredible I think yeah I'm going to point out two scenes uh, as the highlights of the film one was this scene you're talking about it takes place in Bernstein's apartment on Thanksgiving Day and obviously like they had a premium uh, address and they could watch they could watch the parade uh the Macy's parade from their balcony and, and they were right on top of it and um he and uh Felicia ha- have it out for the first time really have it out about his true self you know and there there's a big distance between them and they and they really go at it and the writing is very tight and then as that argument ends a giant Sno- snoopy balloon <laughs> float floats past, and I was, and I'm like that is that is some solid stuff. And the other scene, the the other scene that I I I really um you know and this has been talked about widely is the scene where you finally get to see him conduct. Oh my sort god! Sort of toward yes. the end, where he's like he's like not he's not old Leonard Bernstein, but he's like middle to late middle age Leonard Bernstein, and he's and he's conducting some kind of choral thing in a church, and he just goes whole hog into it with full passion and um. And obviously, like Bradley Cooper, must have watched many, many hours of tape um, it, because they, they play a sort of similar scene toward the end of Leonard Bernstein conducting. And it just really kind of captures the spirit and the joy of things. And, you know, and that's one long, several minute take. There's not a lot of cutting away. So those two moments in particular are really good. Uh, so let's real we'll talk real quick before we we cut this segment, uh, you know, far too short, far too short. Darling. Um <laughs> It's a
1: delightful movie to watch. I can't wait to see it again, honestly.
0: No, no, no. I I couldn't possibly watch it again. It's too rich for me, too rich. Oh, darling, it's too too much. Too too much. Too much. Too much. I'd much rather watch a car crash. Um, (laughs) In in, in, in any case, um, we had a piece before. There was a controversy about... Bradley Cooper playing Jew face, you know, putting on the prosthetic nose, oh, putting yeah. on the prosthetic nose, uh, to play Leonard And I gotta say like, you know, I, I am, uh, I don't know if you knew this or not, but I am Jewish and, well, um, yeah, yeah. And I, I put on, I put on my nose every morning to, to, face, <laughs> hey, to, 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 to face the world and, um, <laughs> darling. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I I didn't notice it honestly. Like I thought that Bradley Cooper's performance. I, I'm not a huge fan of of Bradley Cooper, but um, it definitely he definitely like uh, was you got lost in that role, and I thought Carrie Mulligan also was was very good. Uh, you know, and she she loves she's a very uh show offy actress. They really are. They both <laughs> are. They to, really are. Oh my god. She loves to she she loves to show what a, show us what a great actor she is, <laughs> and she is. And there are there are no other um, there are no other characters who really matter. In the film, it's like the sort of random kids, and then and, so, and Sarah Silverman, you didn't mention Sarah Silverman is there, but you know <laughs> she's she, Sarah Silverman's not it's not a great actor. Let's, let's, <laughs> let, let, let us be clear about that. And then there's just like a just like an endless parade of 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 Leonard Leonard's tricks. Kind of hanging around, hanging right. around the edges. Matt Bomer. Matt Bomer's
1: great. Was He's Matt
0: good. Bomer the the guy in the black and white section, the early? Yes,
1: he was the kind of first lover we see. Yeah, yes,
0: yeah. I'm not saying there weren't good actors in the movie, but I, I they they didn't register. It's a, it's a really a two character play. It really is, and I feel like they they were the only two characters that that. You know, I
1: guess you know by the, the the high council allowed them to tell those stories and no other stories. You know what I mean? Like it just They're
0: the only ones.
1: The only ones, darling. Maybe my my hawk has a bit of an
0: arc, darling. A bit, a bit, but I don't feel like the summer really sings in her like it does in, <laughs> in, 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 in Lenny.
1: But that scene where she asks him, point blank, "Are you gay?"
0: and he's like, "Uh, no, honey, <laughs> not me." <laughs> He's just a good friend, honey. I'm gonna go have drinks by the pool with Tommy now, but I'm not gay. <laughs> Give me a break. All right. Anyway that that is um that is my astro. And uh, up next, I'm going to talk to uh, uh, Stephen McCauley about Ferrari, who uh, definitely not gay. <laughs> that guy was definitely not gay. He's the opposite of gay. Um, and and then Steve- not not that you couldn't be
1: a fantastic. Gay, fantastic car designer.
0: Well, that that's true, but that that this particular one was not. And um, and then Stephen, you're gonna pop back in in a little while, and we're gonna talk about um, a very very heterosexual movie, The Iron Claw. And I'll talk to you. <laughs> talk to you in a bit, darling. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Two objects cannot occupy the same point in space, the same moment in time. the corner races at you. You have perhaps a crisis of identity. Am I a sportsman?
2: Or a competitor? If you get into one of my cars, you get in the wind.
1: Go beat the hell out.
0: There have been a plethora of car racing movies in recent years, and the most recent entry in the car racing movie race is Ferrari, uh, directed by Michael Mann. It's a biopic of sorts about uh, Enzo Ferrari, although it doesn't follow uh, traditional biopic rules. It mostly is set in one year of uh, Enzo Ferrari's life in 1957, sort of a turning point year for him and there's not a ton there's one race there's the Mille Miglia which is a a thousand mile race uh around Italy and it's sort of a key race for the Ferrari um brand and for the Ferrari business I I've seen this film and I I enjoyed it quite a bit I thought that it was um superior to uh other recent racing movies I mean I did like Ford versus Ferrari which came out a few years ago and was uh nominated for an Oscar but that was sort of a, a more of a kind of a crowd pleasing uh rousing American-style movie, whereas Ferrari is more of an intimate chamber drama, a little a little grimmer. It's not a gr- not a totally grim movie, but it is a little grimmer and a little more artistic than Ford vs. Ferrari, and it certainly trumps Rush and Gran Turismo, which are also decent films. As a little background, I uh, have spent some time uh, as an automotive journalist, as they call people who write car reviews for money, uh, but I would not say I am an expert in all things automotive. I sort of was sucked into that world almost by accident and out of financial necessity uh, about 10 years ago. And I met many well-regarded and uh, well-informed car experts during my time as an automotive journalist. And one of those is Book and Film Globe contributor Stephen McCauley, who is here today to talk to me about Enzo Ferrari and the Ferrari legacy. Hello, Stephen. Neil, how are you? I am doing well. Uh, I, I am not a Ferrari driver myself. As we talk, I'm facing a Rather expensive uh, fuel and injector and fuel coil repair on my 2013 Toyota Prius, which is not what Ferrari is about. But other than that, I'm I'm doing well, and I enjoyed Ferrari quite a bit. And I'm you know I'm curious about uh, the veracity of, of the story of, uh, of Enzo Ferrari because the movie takes place in 1957, which I I don't know how familiar you are with that that particular. Era of Ferrari history, but it was sort of a turning point where the the business was on the verge of going broke. Does that does that sound about right?
2: Well, th- that's sort of correct. I think that was heightened for purposes of the movie. The the whole issue of you know whether Ferrari was going to make it as a company or not. So I I, I would take that with a bit of a grain of salt. And you know, it occurs to me that there should have been a movie about Enzo Ferrari made a long time ago because his career was so incredible it's it's the stuff of a movie he, here you have this guy who you know was 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 born just before the turn of the 20th century he starts out his career as a race car driver in in 1919 he he then joins Alfa Romeo in 1931 he decides he's not going to be racing anymore he's still working with Alfa then he leaves in, in 1939, starts his own company, and the rest is basically history. I mean, with, with Ferrari, I would argue, being one of the most famous car brands on the planet.
0: Agreed there, you know, but the movie does, it does. there's a brief flashback to a race uh, in 1933, which was apparently a race where a couple of friends of his died, and sort of the specter of death hangs over this movie. Well, for you know, there's also some flash, short flashbacks to him Picking through the rubble of his factory, which was, I guess, bombed by the Allies in World War II, um, and uh, you know, 1957 comes along, and you know, he is—he's still kind of dealing with the aftermath of that. Although, uh, you know, Ferrari has 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 definitely uh, come up in the world since then. The movie does spend a lot of time lingering on how dangerous auto racing was, especially back then. You know, they, they're the melee, melee. They, you know, the, yeah, they were wearing helmets. I, but. Um, you know, they were driving these open air cars on country roads, you know, extremely fast and beating the hell out of them. That is not the, I mean, I know auto racing is still dangerous, but it, it's not as dangerous as that anymore, right?
2: Right. Well, I mean, so, so for, for those who are not familiar with it, um, the Mille Miglia is a race, was a race on the on the streets of of Italy. I mean, it was, there, there was not a special course. They, they just drove. There were basically, n- you know, no rules. It's like, get there. So, you know, that race had had a a tragic accident that leads to leads to the death of many, including five children. You know, what's interesting is, is that just a a couple of years before that race, during the 24 hour at Le Mans, that race killed 82 spectators. Not in just not not in one accident, I'm guessing. No, it was it was um, a car flew into the grandstand and exploded and, and, you know, killed these people. But yeah. So, I mean, Enzo had to deal with, with, you know, his, his drivers um, dying. Um, You know, one of them was this guy named Eugenio Castioli, who, you know, was, was a big star and he died on a test track just a few weeks before that race in 1957. So, I mean, you know, Enzo was like, ah, this is terrible. Right. And the movie depicts that. And then he hires a Spanish driver who also,
0: who was, who was part of this accident you refer to. And they show, they show that accident where that with the spectators are killed, and it is gruesome. I mean, it is the most realistic car crash scene. I mean, there's a little bit of CGI with the car flying into the air or whatever, but the actual like killing of the spectators, you know, they don't they don't pull any punches. It is gruesome, mm-hmm. and that's the, that's the capper of this great auto race. You know, and that's not usually that's not what you see. You know, that's not Steve McQueen pulling into the paddock. You know, <laughs> that's not a you know that's not that's not the uh, there's no champagne shower. There's just kind of this grim investigation. It just, cinematically, it works really well in the film. I, I also wanted to um, talk to you about, because half of the movie is about uh, Enzo Ferrari's rather uh, unusual personal life. He basically had a separate, he had two families,
2: and that's true, right? Right, so so he he married his his wife, Laura Garello, in 1923, and then they had a son, Alfredo Ferrari, who was better known as Dino, um, in, in 1932. Turns out that he met a woman named Lena Lardi in 1944. And gave birth to a son named Piero in 1945. Um, so, yeah, that was, um, you know, an ongoing situation in Enzo's life where he did have these two families. Yeah.
0: And he kept he kept his uh, quote unquote illegitimate family secret from Laura and his other son, who, as the you know the movie depicts also, uh, they don't show it, but it happens off screen or before the action of the movie starts. But he dies of a uh, disease in the fifties. And so there's a lot, there's a battle over who's going to inherit the Ferrari mantle, you know, because by the time the movie um, starts, you know, Enzo Ferrari, who I think I, I thought Adam driver was, was terrific as, I mean, you know, he's, he's pushing 60, right. And uh, he has to figure out what's going to happen with his company when, when he's done. He's not, he's not, at the, he's not at the finish line yet, but he's, you know, he can see the, he can sort of see the end of the tunnel. Right. I feel like the movie, everything you're describing here, the movie covers,
2: yeah, it, it, it you know it, it's, it's it's worth pointing out that um, so Dino, the son, the legitimate son, you know, dies at age 24 the year before the movie starts. So so you have that situation. Piero is is significantly younger. I mean, since he was born in 1945 and we're talking about uh, 1957, you know, it's a, it's a 12 year delta there. Um, you know, th- there's this other thing, you know, you're talking about the the two lives being separate. Um, we, we've got to realize that this is taking place in Italy and divorce was illegal in Italy until 1970. So this is not something that uh, would be widely bantered about. Yeah. And well, there's also the there's also the business fact that Laura, uh, his wife, owned 50
0: percent of the company. They were business partners in addition to to uh, have to spouses. And I feel like the movie does a pretty nice job. Of outlining that as well so you know that, Ferrari is an interesting biopic in that it tightly focuses on one year of a you know of a great man's life right and it really like all the sort of um, themes and issues of his life came into um, sharp focus around this, uh, this Mille Miglia I guess, I guess I have a question about the Mille Miglia so there was this terrible accident when did they stop running that race? Right after that
2: race so that was the last one. That that was the last one, um, and you know Enzo was was basically charged with manslaughter as a result of that race. And um, but but he was found not guilty. He he was eventually found not guilty. I mean, it, it took years for him to be found not guilty, and uh, a determination was basically made that the accident, the car that left the track and killed the uh, the spectators, had actually shredded because it had hit. Um piece of med- a, piece of metal in the road or something, right? Well, it, no, it actually it's 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 called cat's eye. So in in some roads, there are these reflectors that are put into the concrete to, you know, like divide lanes. So the jurors that were impaneled, um, who were basically engineers, um, they made that determination because one of the things he had been charged with earlier was the fact that uh he was using cheap tires, which was not certainly the case.
0: Yeah. I, he didn't seem like someone who was uh, stinting on, on cost, uh, which is part of the reason why his company right. was in financial trouble. So would you say that was like kind of the end of a a wild era of road racing or, um, you know, were
2: there other races that kind of carried that legacy on after that? Well, I mean, basically, if you think about it, I mean, while accidents weren't quite as elaborate or tragic as had happened, you know, in, in the 1950s, I mean... There's still been lots of people who died in NASCAR races before that got uh, squared away. So, so now I mean, yeah, certainly, 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 it's a hell of a lot safer. But you know, there's there's sort of a, a ironic, maybe ironic isn't the right word, but interesting aspect to this. Um, you know, so so the Mille Miglia again is just you know open roads. You're driving you know a thousand miles in Italy. The movie is based on a book, Enzo Ferrari: The Man in the Machine, written by Brock Yates published in 1991. It, it just so happens that in 1979, Brock Yates helped create and participated into a coast-to-coast driving challenge from New York to LA named the Cannonball Baker Sea to Shining Sea Race. Okay, this happened in 79. And in 1981, we had the Burt Reynolds film Cannonball Run, which was based on that race and which Brock Yates actually wrote. Right. The, in other words, the uh,
0: the mythology lives on.
2: Well, yeah. Let me. But the, the cannonball run is certainly much safer, and it's just like a whole bunch of individuals that would do this. It wasn't sort of like the flag goes down and the racers take off.
0: Right. Well, car movies maybe used to be a little more fun than Ferrari uh, is, but I, you know, you are a, a well versed in automotive lore and automotive history, and I highly recommend that you get to see this as soon as you can. I think you'll really enjoy it. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, Stephen McCauley. We will talk to you soon.
2: Thanks, Neil.
1: The Challengers from Denton, Texas, weighing in at a combined weight of 690 pounds Kevin, Kerry, and David Von Erich.
0: Look at my beautiful brothers. The Von are the greatest family in the history of wrestling even Garrett. I'm tired of you challenging me on this podcast with your ignorant opinions and your ideas about movies. When you don't know anything, I know everything about movies. I know it all. I got this Rolex watch. I got a $50,000 Cadillac in the driveway. I'm the best movie critic. I'm number one. You can't challenge me. You can't be. How can you take this seriously? How can anybody take this movie seriously? This is the
1: craziest movie ever well, seen.
0: What? The Iron Claw. We're talking about The Iron Claw, which is a <laughs> wrestling biopic currently in theaters now. And here's what I say you have expressed to me your doubts about this film, but I have to say, I feel like your blue stateness is showing, your epidermis, your blue state epi- epidermis is showing here, <laughs> Stephen, because. Um, I, I live in Texas. I, I don't necessarily like living in Texas, but I have lived in Texas for a long time. And this movie, you know, this movie is very Texas, The Iron Claw. It, it's set in Denton, Texas, for the most part, in this Texas family. They live on a ranch type situation they the brothers like to go intertubing and drink their beers and they um they wrestle in the texas theater and you know the whole thing is just very has this very sort of down-home texas feeling which is odd because the uh, guy who directed and wrote it uh, sean durkin i believe is canadian but uh, he captures he captures something about texas in the iron claw yeah it's interesting and also you know i i saw it
1: uh, at the screening where he talked a little uh, to introduce it and I think he said something like where's the fact? like I don't think he actually grew up I think he grew up maybe in like the UK or something so like Texan wrestling was something that was exotic and different for him and he kind of I don't know he has some very very deeply emotional tie to it yeah. and this movie like meant a lot to him this is a serious passion project.
0: It's a deeply emotional story. I mean it it, it's yeah, a ridiculous story in some ways it's about the Von Erich it family. It is. It's They're, in some way and this
1: is a ridiculous story. Anyway, but, I'm sorry. But it's I a
0: true you. story. That's what true. makes that's what makes yeah. it good. The Von Erich family was a one of the first families of wrestling sort of in the pre uh, Vince McMahon Hulk Hogan the Rock era. You know when it was, it was sort of modern wrestling on TV with the big personalities and the bragging, but it wasn't quite there yet. So it wasn't the multi-billion dollar industry that it is today. It was still a little bit gritty. And, um, the patriarch, I believe his name is Fritz von Erich, or that was his chosen last name. Who's played brilliantly in this film by Holt McElhaney from, uh, he's great. He's great. Um, he just, just a fantastic performance. Um, you know, he basically is like a failed college football player, um, who, uh, and who doesn't quite succeed and get the belt in wrestling. And so he has all these beefy sons who he, like, imposes his will upon and forces, basically forces them in into the ring. But the main character in this film is uh, is uh, Kevin Von Erich, played by an incredibly jacked and oiled up Zach Efron.
1: Super jacked and oiled up and walking around in tighty-whities, and he just looks like he's in kind of pain, like he cannot put his
0: arms to his
1: sides because they
0: just... He, but he, I, th- I thought Efron was incredible in this. He showed, a, I mean, a lot of emotional range, g- given the fact that he couldn't move his facial muscles. You know. <laughs> but, but I have to say, like, you know, this movie's secret weapon, the hammer, the iron claw, as it is, is Jeremy Allen White. Oh, he's great. Who is uh, yeah. well-known to TV audiences as Carmi from The Bear, and also was a, was a main character in Shameless. So he's been a lo- long-time successful TV actor, but he's never had, like, a marquee movie role, and this, so this is his first, he's not the lead character, you know, that's definitely Zac Efron, but he, you know, he has, he's a major character in the film, uh, he plays Carrie um, Von Eric, who is a, um, an Olympic level discus thrower, he's gonna, he was gonna go to the Olympics, this is a true story, he's gonna go to the Olympics in 1980, and then Jimmy Carter boycotted the Moscow Olympics, and so instead he goes home to the family ranch, and then gets recruited by his crazy dad to wrestle with his brothers on TV, and then wins the belt, wins the title. It's true. It's all true. But, you know, this is a really a show about filial, uh, filial love is brotherly love, right? Like, about these brothers love each other. They love being together. They have a wonderful, like, deep bond. Um, and so when well, that— and
1: there's, You, you mentioned—you didn't mention uh, it's David, right? David Von Erickson. David is, Von, Von Erickson Dickinson plays, who's, who's the, I guess, the arty one, right? The one who's got the the indie rock band. No, no, that's whatever. Mike.
0: Mike is oh, the— Oh, Mike. Yeah. Okay, he's ha- ha- nice. Yeah, Harris Dickinson plays uh David who's like the uh he got a long blonde mop of hair, Van Halen hair, and he's kind of like the mouthy one who's good on the mic. Whereas Kevin, he's the most naturally talented physical wrestler, but he's very he's got no personality. He's like, "I uh, uh I'm going to beat you I- in the ring." Yeah. Tomorrow. Yeah, whereas whereas David's real real glib. And you know, and um Carmi, not Carmi, um Carrie <laughs> is uh <laughs> <laughs> He's probably the most athletic of the bunch. Um, and Mike is this uh, indie rock musician, younger brother who they force into the ring, who the dad forces into the ring. And it's just, it turns out to be a disaster. And uh, I, I, you might not know this, but there was another brother, not the little one who died, but there's a guy named Chris von Eric who was like five foot four and asthmatic. And they also made him wrestle. And he also died. <laughs> and, they, and, they, and they left that out of the movie because they were like That's, that would be just be too much tragedy I'm, I'm like too much tragedy I, I have never literally never seen a movie with as much tragedy in it as the Iron Claw you didn't mention the curse, like the Von Eric curse, right? Well, here's the thing. There's a, okay, the family curse is not real. It just this family does have bad luck. But part of the reason why these bad things keep happening is because they're wrestling. This is the thing. It's not luck and it's not a curse. They keep doing this dumb thing that is highly risk. You, you throw yourself on a canvas enough times, yeah, your intestines are going to freaking rupture. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, I mean, of course
1: you're going to die. And, it, like, this is my problem with the movie is that there's, like, definitely a boneheaded syndrome in this movie where you're just, like, stop doing what you're doing. You're destroying yourselves right, and each but, other. Right, but
0: the thing is it's really a movie, um, you know, at its core. Yes, it's there's a lot of wrestling milieu, and I think that's very well – it's very well – the wrestling scenes are great. The TV, grainy TV footage, fake grainy TV footage is great. <laughs> and the yeah. graphics. And the graphics. The late 70s,
1: early 80s graphics are
0: chef's kiss. Very fun. But I feel like, you know, it's really a movie about um, the, the burden of parental expectations and of, of kind of not breaking a family curse, but of breaking the cycle of, of dysfunction and trauma that fathers pass down to their sons. And I don't know how, why personally I would be familiar with such a cycle, Maybe I had a father with some trauma, you know. Maybe and it was slightly unresolved, and maybe I'm attempting to not pass that down to my own son. So I found it relatable that you know and that you know and and touching when um I, I won't give it away, but you know let's just say that on the off chance that somehow the cycle breaks. The movie handles it would handle it extremely well, right? Uh, right, right and in a very right. sort of moving and, and tear jerking kind of way. And so I don't know. I like. I really. Like, I think I like this movie more than you did. I, I kind of place it in a category of movies. Yes. Okay. Wrestling is ridiculous. You know. You and I are not fans, but I know many people and many of the people I play trivia with, for instance, love professional wrestling because it's like a whole category of popular culture with characters and names and like. Facts to know and like titles to to track and all that, but I I feel like um you know for people who lo- you know love it they they really love it and and I th- I think the movie does a really nice job sort of capturing why people love it and and, and then it makes it personal in a in a really um I would say lovely way it's not a lovely film but it is in a, in a really very specific and detailed way and I and I, I I admire this movie so as a sports weeper uh in the tradition of like. Bang the drum slowly, or Brian's song. Or do you remember the John Voigt's The Champ? <laughs> get up champ get up <laughs> mil, mil, million million dollar baby pride of the yankees you're
1: right you're right i mean there's a long storied history of like sports weepies and this is you know definitely uh up there as well i look i really liked it too i really like sean durkin as a filmmaker that marcy may marlene movie he made the first one uh, his debut, I thought, it was really outstanding. The, I think just what what boggled me, and and it's maybe what you're you're saying is, you know, like I I'm not a fan of wrestling. I don't want that to stop me from appreciating it, but I do feel like I kept thinking. First of all, there's no curse. You're killing yourselves. Stop doing this. Movies can get away with anything. If there's a character who at least acknowledges the absurdity of the situation, it kind of helps. And it's funny. I was I kept thinking of the wrestler, which I think Darren Aronofsky. Captured the absurdity of that in a way that was loving, but also kind of like the characters knew how absurd the whole thing was, but it almost amplified the tragedy.
0: Right. Whereas I, I, I will say this. If given a choice, they're like, you have to watch one movie again, The Iron Claw or The Wrestler, I would definitely watch The Iron Claw again. Because <laughs> it's entertaining. <laughs> well, it's, it's, more, it's, it's more entertaining. It's more broke, and it's very, very Texas. It could have, as far as I'm concerned, it could have been directed by Richard Linklater. It was so Texas. Right.
1: Right, right. No, I kind of love that. You really do get that. flavor. What you get is that love. There's such an earnest, sincere, almost boyish love that Sean Durkin clearly has had since his childhood for this family, which he admits, you know, that he followed back in the day and he was shocked by the tragedies that hit them. So, you know, like passion project. Absolutely. And it shows and, and his his love and his earnestness is so palpable. And yet there's this part of me that's like, dude, you realize how ridiculous this is on a certain level too. And I feel like the movie doesn't acknowledge that at all. If, you know, even just a little, it could have helped for me.
0: All right. So you wanted, so you wanted a little wink, wink in the corner. I get it. Just a little like, yeah, this is
1: ridiculous, isn't it? But we're all in and these boys love each other and their dad. I mean, look, Hey, I, I was the youngest of three brothers. We only had brothers and my father was from Texas, you know? So don't try to pull the Texas card on me, man.
0: I was a film I was a film critic and you're going to be a film critic. You're all going to be film critics together.
1: Listen, listen brother, I'm going to slam you down on the mat and make you read movie reviews. All right. I'll
0: see you next week Stephen. Right. We we'll talk. I <laughs> talk about movies till we're blue in the face. <laughs> all right. Thank you Stephen Garrett, the Iron Claw is playing in theaters now. See it with a big, rowdy crowd as wrestling pictures were meant to be seen. See it in Texas, if you can. That's where I saw it. I also saw Maestro in Texas, although I watched it in my home office on Netflix, which is where it is airing. Not only in my home office, but on Netflix. And that stars Bradley Cooper. It's about the life and work of Leonard Bernstein. And I also talked to Stephen McCauley about Ferrari, starring Adam Driver, directed by Michael Mann. That's a movie about sort of the history of car racing. I thought that was quite good as well. I hope you enjoy all of these movies. I hope you enjoy all movies, even if you don't like them. I hope you enjoy them. That's the point of movies. They're not to be. but you can hate. You can hate. Watch them. You shouldn't hate them. I'm Neil Pollock. I'm the editor in chief of Book and Film Globe. www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. And I will talk at you next week
2: original production